Welcome to our semi-weekly essay for FAs podcast, a series that addresses issues of current interest to financial advisors and active investors, including retirement planning, asset allocation, and the economy. I am your host, Gil Weinrich of Seeking Alpha, and today I'm pleased to welcome as my guest, Daniel Ammerman, CFA. Dan has written a series of attention-getting articles on Seeking Alpha concerning financial planning in non-normal times. I thought it was high time to get a sharper perspective on his outlook via this podcast. So with no further ado, Dan, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me, Gil. It's a pleasure. A lot of people follow you on this site and they're interested in your articles, but they probably don't have a good picture of what you do professionally. So to better understand where you're coming from, could you describe for us what your business is, who your clients are, and how you developed your unique niche? Well, my business has developed over the years. Um, I started out as an institutional investment banker, early days doing some of the early generation CMOs and Remix and restructuring, helping to restructure the savings and loan industry, different things like that. Uh, and then for a number of years, um, I was a financial author. I've written some uh, financial reference books for McGraw-Hill, worked with uh, institutions uh, on the quantitative side, mathematical verifications and so forth. But over the years, I have found that when I read a lot of stuff about financial planning for individuals, that I, I keep going, well, yeah, but, but, yeah, but, as in, you know, I, I think there's some uh, things that I have to say there that can really help people out. So what I've been doing in more recent years is I do write a uh, series of analyses. I have a client base going back uh, many years that are they are primarily um, high net worth individuals. And I keep in touch with them and I offer ongoing two-day immersion workshops, which is really a good opportunity for me to talk with them and for me to also learn what they're really dealing with, what's going on, what are some of the practical issues that we can work with here. And I have some other financial education products. So if you had to, I guess, boil down to what I'm doing these days or what I've been doing in recent years, um, I am a financial author who works with uh, strategies and financial education education for high net worth individuals primarily. That's fascinating. Well, on the site, on Seeking Alpha, that is, you write about topics of great concern to pre-retirees, such as Social Security and Medicare. Let's take them one at a time. What do the not yet retired need to know about Social Security? How realistic are concerns about solvency? And what should investors do to protect themselves? I present a different perspective on Social Security that, again, probably comes in from my background as a, a longtime uh, financial analyst on the institutional side, basically working with financial mathematics. And I don't think it's an either-or situation. And unfortunately, that's what a, an awful lot of the analysis out there assumes. It's kind of like, on the one hand, the conventional thing, where if you look at the name sources, the name resources, uh, in terms of what they recommend for how to evaluate different Social Security options, they assume that Social Security will be paid in full with no changes and 100% uh, accurate inflation indexing into perpetuity. And I, I think that's naive. Uh, based both on the past in terms of what we've seen and more importantly, what we know is coming. No, there's a equally large group of people who look at Social Security and Medicare in terms of the programs are bankrupt, therefore they're going to go insolvent, therefore we shouldn't count on them at all. 
I think that also is unlikely. It's possible, but it's unlikely. Uh, For me, the better approach is to use the existing tools that we have for financial analysis, things like present value analysis and so forth, and apply that to the Social Security and Medicare programs using everything that we know. The end result that we come up with mathematically is probably not that different from common sense for most people, although it does give you a much more accurate idea about what you should do relative to various uh, questions and so forth. And that is, if you look out in the future and we look at the solvency of the program and we look at the series of reforms that are likely to be done and we look at the mechanics of inflation indexing for Social Security versus the mechanics of what actual inflation for expenses tends to be for most retirees, uh, we basically have a situation where it's likely to get paid, but what we get paid is each year out is worth a little less today than it was the year before. So the farther out we're going in time with Social Security and Medicare, the less reliance we should put on it in each coming year, the farther out we go from right now. And again, that may sound like common sense, but we've got some really good mathematical ways of doing that uh, within the financial discipline that people have not been applying, but that I do apply in my work, and that can make some material changes. So in the very simplest terms, Would that mean that people should claim earlier than later? Not necessarily. Uh, A great deal depends on the person. Uh, It depends on their employment situation. It depends on their spousal situation. It depends on their gender. Now, now that's a, a really interesting area. That's some of the analysis I haven't put on your website yet, but I hope to at some point down the road, is when to uh, claim Social Security can be a radically different question uh, for a woman than it would be for a man, just because of the different expectations for lifetime at a given age. It materially changes where the advantages are. And of course, then you take the spousal situation and that adds the next level to it. Okay. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about Medicare for now. We have the same issues there about solvency, presumably, and what steps should people be taking to plan their retirement health care? Well, the really interesting part about Medicare, and it's one of the most uh, popular analyses that I've published on your website. It's the one I think probably got 300 some comments on it. People were just keenly interested in it, is Medicare premiums are a shared pool, eight coming changes that will transform retirement. And the fascinating part about Medicare is the interrelationship with what is known as the hold harmless provision of Social Security. And what that says is that for most retirees, their um, net Social Security payment, assuming they're having Medicare withheld from their Social Security check, as the great majority of people do, can't go down. There's really two sides to that. One of them is for people who are in lower income levels coming in to Medicare and Social Security. What that means is that it's not effectively inflation indexed because their net payments will, and we've seen quite a bit of this in recent years, actually grow at a 0% rate and not keep up with inflation because their uh, Medicare premiums are entirely eating up their Social Security check. And, you know, I put that out there in that analysis, and it was amazing the amount of feedback I got from people who are exactly in that situation. This is reality. This is what they're living every day. Now, the flip side of it, is that 25% of Medicare Part B is a self-funding program. So the federal government doesn't guarantee that. And to the extent that any of the people who have the lower benefits are being held, are being protected 
by hold harmless, which means that their net payments are not going down. Well, that means there's losses that have to go somewhere. And where those losses go is those are allocated to the people who have the larger benefit checks. And those people are not so much protected by hold harmless. So in the process of picking up the uh, inflationary growth in Medicare for the lower income recipients, the higher income recipients of Medicare, even if the program continues to work exactly as forecast, and of course we know there'll be big reforms, does not keep up with inflation either. Okay, but practically speaking, it's less clear to me what is somebody supposed to do to protect themselves in that regard. With Social Security, you, um, you well, said that I'm... It, go on, please. Okay. What you're looking at in each instance is you are looking at claiming decisions, which for most people is a one-time question, but both Medicare and Social Security are, are just critical for how you do that. The other aspect is financial planning in general. What my work uh, has demonstrated is that people can't invest for a level inflation uh, adjusted amount of uh, cash flow that they're going to need in the future, but rather they are going to need an increasing amount of cash flow even in after inflation terms when we take into account the steady decreases in net cash flow in real terms that are going to be experienced as a result of both Social Security and Medicare premiums. Now, one example when it comes to the claiming decision is that that puts in a real strong um, bias for claiming no later than age 65 when someone becomes eligible for Medicare. You got to have to understand why that's the case. Uh, I usually present things in terms of 62 versus 70, basically earliest versus latest, and that can make a lot of sense uh, when it comes to just Social Security side. But when you take Medicare into account, uh, there is a pool of people who are completely unprotected from inflationary increases in Medicare premiums. And if you go back two or three years, um, those people were nearly hit by, I think it was a 56% increase in Medicare premiums that was supposed to go through in a single year until that was averted uh, on a one-time basis by an act of Congress. And the deal is that if you are not claiming social security, then you have no protection when it comes to Medicare premium increases. And when the rest of the over 65 population is kind of allocating and, and splitting up where the dollars go when it comes to paying for the next higher level of Medicare, someone who is 65 or over but not claiming Medicare is essentially in the sucker's position and they have to pay the premiums for everyone else. And that's why we're in this outrageous situation until we had an act of Congress where they're going to, some of those people were going to be paying a, a more than 50% increase in Medicare premiums because they were not yet claiming Social Security and they did not have the protection. Among those who might disagree with you are those who think that Social Security and Medicare are politically untouchable. The politicians will one way or the other work that one out and therefore people should just wait as long as they can and maximize their lifetime benefit. What do you say to that argument? Okay, this is um, uh, one of the things that I have been saying for more than 10 years now. And it has held up to be true that entire time. I think it'll be even more true in the future. And that is that... Social Security and Medicare cannot be paid out in full as an economic necessity. And this will happen in a politically, in a deceptive manner as a political necessity. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing right now. You have tens of millions of people out there who know that until this most recent increase went through for 2019, that had barely no increases 
in net cash flow from Social Security, net of Medicare for the last three or four years. But they've all been seeing their expenses go up. And, and that's an advantage of uh, sharing these analyses on, on a site like Seeking Alpha is all the comments and communications you get back. And you have virtually every retired, virtually everyone out there who's already of an age where they're collecting that is just emphatically agreeing with me and saying, yes, I'm seeing my expenses go up. Yes, my net payments on Social Security and of Medicare aren't even remotely keeping up with that. And this is happening on a national basis. But at the very same time, when you talk about the people who are pre-retirement, what is being shared with them by those people who, as, as you say, disagree with me and say that this will be paid in full, they're believing they're actually going to be paid in full. The people who are actually retired understand exactly what I'm talking about because it's happening to them in reality. Now, retire have to consider taxation as well. With, with income resources stretched during those later years, what can investors do to keep more of their wealth and a portion less to Uncle Sam? I think that one of the, the primary things that uh, retirees need to be keeping in mind and people who are investing for retirement is the issue of inflation taxes. We have this kind of basic conflict of interest that, again, is built in right in the very financial firmament between Federal Reserve policy and the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, The Federal Reserve, as a matter of policy, tries to encourage a significant rate of inflation, moderate. But, but still a significant rate of inflation. And if you want to look at why the uh, dollar is worth five cents now compared to when the U.S. truly went off the gold standard in 1933, at least in terms of uh, domestic gold certificates and so forth, uh, we've lost 95% of the value of the dollar. Some of that has been accidental inflation. Most of it has been entirely deliberate. Uh, the federal government, one hand of the federal government effectively working to reduce the value of the dollar. At the very same time, The uh, Internal Revenue Service does not recognize inflation-adjusted dollars. So what that means is that any investment of almost any form in the act of keeping up with inflation because the dollar is worth a little bit less every year has to generate taxable profits in most cases. Of course, it depends on the specifics there. And once the IRS takes their taxes on the profits that are really just keeping up with inflation, that almost locks in losses on an after-tax and after-inflation basis. I look at everything always in after-inflation, after-tax terms. And when you take that perspective, I think some of the challenges for what people need to do in investing for retirement are greater and of a different form than many people are taking into account. You've described these as non-normal times. As you said in the very beginning of our podcast, yes, but you would look at things and you would say, yes, but things are just sort of different today. What makes things different today? A big part of my work, and it's it's like the longer I do it, the, the bigger part it becomes, is an understanding of cycles. People often think that we haven't been here before. And there are some specifics that are different this time around. Uh, But to a large extent, we have been here before and we know how it's been resolved. And it's been resolved in a manner that's not pretty for many retirement investors. Uh, Yes, we are at a place now where the U.S. national debt is larger than the U.S. economy. And this is happening simultaneously with our funding issues with Social Security and Medicare. the, The approach that I take to things, and, and this is there's nearly enough time here to really go into what that all means, is I take a holistic approach. I'm saying that you can't look at the national debt without looking at Social Security. You can't 
look at Social Security without looking at the national debt, and that these are not big macro issues that a retirement investor shouldn't worry about because there's nothing that they can do about it. But I would rather say that taking those into account is going to be a critical part of making better decisions. Now, coming back to the growth of the national debt, uh, what many people have forgotten is that in the immediate aftermath of World War II, the United States, as well as many other nations in the Western world, actually had national debts that were greater than the size of their economies. And they essentially wiped those out. They, they dropped the not entirely, but they brought the national debt down to 25, 30% of the economy in the next 25 years or so. And how they did that was through a process that uh, economists refer to as financial repression. And what financial repression involves is having interest rates being lower than the rate of inflation. And that does two things. One of them is that that steadily erodes the value of the national debt, even as the economy is growing. So a nation, and this is a proven method, it worked for nations all around the world, uh, slowly emerges from a debt crisis and becomes healthy again. The flip side of it is the rules get turned upside down for investors in general and retirement investors in particular during those years of financial repression because as a matter of deliberate government policy, they're not being fairly compensated for inflation and they're seeing an ongoing erosion in the after inflation and after tax value of their investments rather than the expected increases that they're hoping to get. Well, you've, asked, you've offered quite a number of interesting insights. And as we approach the end of our lot, allotted time, let me ask you if you could perhaps offer some sort of anecdote, some real life example of how one of your clients took some action on the basis of this sort of advice you're offering and saved him or herself from grief. I do know actually numerous personal anecdotes in that area. Um, I started doing this in terms of communicating uh, with people back about 2006, 2007. My own background was that I had helped structure some of the first generation mortgage derivatives, those being CMOs and REMICs. I literally wrote the book in terms of McGraw-Hill's first reference work on collateralized mortgage obligations, unlock the secrets of mortgage derivatives. So coming into the financial crisis of 2008, I really knew mortgage derivatives. And what I was writing about um, frequently and at great length was just how dangerous that market was and how, because of these interlocking derivatives markets, Wall Street could essentially be taken down in a flash. So out of the tens of thousands of people who were reading my analyses at that time, they knew perfectly well what the risk was before it actually happened. But the more important part is that I wrote about investing for the bailout, not the crisis to expect that the Treasury and the Federal Reserve would take unprecedented steps to contain that crisis, which is what actually happened. We had the TARP program, we had quantitative easing, we had the creation of trillions of dollars out of the nothingness to try to contain the damage from that crisis. If you go back to what I was recommending in 2008 in the workshops and in the DVDs, my number one recommendation was to buy farmland with mild leverage because I felt single family housing was overpriced. The interesting part is over the next four or five years, in terms of asset gains, farmland, particularly farmland with an energy exposure, which is what I was recommending, was one of the best performing asset classes in the country. So I have met a lot of people who 
made a tremendous amount of money off following that advice uh, in terms of the worst crisis that we had seen since the Great Depression. And the interesting part is that advice was not based on buying gold, though I recommended a, a gold component for safety. That was not based on shorting the dollar. That didn't work out so well. But that was based on looking what was ha- looking at what was happening on a holistic basis and saying, okay, where's the opportunity being created? Well, that's where it was being created. A large and growing national debt, soaring deficits, shaky social security and Medicare systems, and above all, financial repression. Factors we need to bear in mind when planning our financial futures. Dan Ammerman, this has been a fascinating talk. Thanks so much for sharing your perspective with our listeners. Thank you, Gil. It's really good to talk with you. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can contact me at gill at seekingalpha.com if you have feedback or requests. And make sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts. This is Seeking Alpha's Gil Weinrich.